We've taken play out of kids' lives, free play, when they're doing all that social-emotional work and replaced it with a lot of adult-organized play where they learn how to kick the ball really well, they learn how to hit a ball really well, but they don't learn how to make the teams and how to change the rules and how to, you know, decide who's bringing the snack. It's all decided by an adult. And so we're just trying to figure out new ways to weave independence, normal independence, back into children's lives so that parents aren't afraid of it and kids get to experience it. And so that by the time they are at college, they've had a million arguments. They've had a million spats. They've had a million times when they've fallen off their bike and had to get back on it and there wasn't anyone there because we think of that as vaccination, vaccinated against vicissitudes of everyday life so that they arrive on campus or at their first job ready to deal with what comes at them. Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. My guest is Lenore Skenazy. Lenore is a veteran journalist who became a media sensation and was dubbed America's worst mom in 2008 for a column she wrote for the New York Sun about letting her nine-year-old ride the subway alone. The controversy led her to speak out about finding safe ways to allow kids to be more independent, and she founded an initiative called the Free Range Kids Movement. In 2018, she co-founded Let Grow, a nonprofit that offers resource materials, school curricula, and even does policy work with an aim towards helping kids be more self-sufficient and, just as importantly, helping parents foster this self-sufficiency without being judged or even punished by a safety-obsessed society. Lenore spoke with me about her work, her own parenting, and the fact that, as she puts it, there's never been a safer time to be a child in America. Lenore Skenazy, thank you for joining me on the Unspeakable Podcast. Thank you. Thank you for speaking on the Unspeakable Podcast. You are a co-founder of Let Grow, an organization Mm -hmm. that I think has developed a number of initiatives to help kids be more independent. And that came out of the free range kids movement, which you spearheaded. And that came out of an article that you published (laughs) in 2008 called why I let my nine-year-old ride the subway alone. Oh, did it? Oh, did it not? (laughs) Right. Yes. Okay. I'm just letting it, you know, in case there's one person out there who doesn't (laughs) know, I'm not sure the term viral was in heavy rotation back then, at least not in a digital sense, but Mm -hmm. it caused a stir. I'm pretty sure that's when your name became familiar to me. So can you just remind us briefly what that was all about, what you wrote, what happened subsequently, all that? With pleasure. So Uh, As the headline, Why I Let My Nine-Year-Old Ride the Subway Alone, suggests, I let my nine-year-old ride the subway alone. And the reason why was because he wanted to. And he had been asking me and my husband, who is never, ever referred to in any of these articles about me as like somebody who's also terrible and negligent and doesn't care if his kid lives or dies. Our son had been asking and we discussed it together and we decided, um, you know, it's okay because we live in New York City, so we are on the subways all the time. That's how we get around. Um, he can read a map. Certainly he could even back then when he was nine, can speak the language, really wanted to do this. And all those things added up to, okay. I, I always think like if I was in the suburbs, it would have been why I let my nine-year-old ride a bike to the 7-Eleven. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but here we are in the city. So I wrote that. Because one sunny Sunday, I took him to Bloomingdale's. I left him there. He knew it was the day. I went home one way. He went home the other and obviously got home by subway and and bus because we lived in a sort of obscure part of Manhattan. And um, so I wrote the column because I'd been speaking afterwards to some other, you know, fourth grade moms about this. And nobody condemned me, but there was a lot of demurring. Let's put it that way. And so I wanted to explore it a little bit because I'm a newspaper reporter by trade and I I knew my statistics. I knew that New York is the, you know, was really safe uh, in terms of right. the 25 largest cities. It's the safest. And also as a reporter, I really got to know a lot of the city and I I believed in the city and I believed in my kid and I particularly believed in this little area where I dropped him off, which was just a, a super safe neighborhood on a Sunday afternoon. Yeah, I would think it would be easier to get lost in Bloomingdale's than outside <laughs> on the streets on the way home. Very true. Very true. And he was barely outside on the streets because the reason he was in Bloomingdale's is because it's above a subway station. Right. Actually, it's its own dedicated subway station. Right. So anyway, so he came home. He was proud. I didn't write about it until about a month and a half later. I'd been talking to some parents. 
And I didn't have anything to write for a column for that week. And I said, should I write about, is he taking the subway? And my editor said, sure, it's a nice local column. Yeah, I <laughs> They know. always say that, don't they? Do, do they know deep down what's coming or are they really that, Nobody that knew. innocent? Nobody knew. I mean, wow. It was such an interesting experience. You know, obviously lots has happened then. But two days later, I was on the Today Show first and... They send a car for you, which is very nice. <laughs> Ironically, yeah. Right. Not taking <laughs> really. the subway. Don't take the subway. For God's sake, don't do that. Actually, that's what Ann Curry said. She never let her kids take the subway. Mm. And she got thrown under a bus. <laughs> Ironically. <laughs> <laughs> Every form of transportation right. has, has a role in this story. <laughs> Anyways, the point being that on the way um, back to my apartment, that my phone rang, and it was a friend of my husband's, really, who said he'd seen me on the Today Show, and I thought... Oh, good. Someone saw it. That was like, you know, it was, I thought like, oh, nice, you know, hooray. It didn't just totally uh, go into that great void. But then later that day, the phone started calling. And by two days later, I'd also been on MSNBC, Fox News and NPR. And then MSNBC had me back again a couple days later. And pretty soon it was, as you say, viral. And so that's the weekend that I started my blog and I called it Free Range Kids. And the slogan or whatever you want to call it was our kids are smarter and safer than our culture gives them credit for. Mm -hmm. And the, the point of my starting the blog was that I, I wanted to defend myself because, you know, it's it started sounding like I was this crazy mom who, you know, devil may care, you know, maybe he'll live, maybe he'll die. Who cares? I got a spare son at home. And um, yeah, I do. Uh, he calls himself the control group. But the point being that I wanted to say, I love safety. I love helmets and car seats and seat belts and mouth guards and uh, extra layers, you know, take a snack, always something in my purse, you know. So I just wanted to set the record straight that you can trust your kid with some independence in the world and still be a very caring, concerned mom. So that's what the kickoff was, just uh, me starting that blog. And what was free range kids. How did you conceive of it and what what shape did it take initially and then how did it evolve? So, I didn't have a big conception of it except, you know, personal defense, <laughs> you know, don't think of me as a horrible mom. I'm not. And also a sort of rallying cry, although I didn't know how much it would be listened to, that like, you know, we've taken away a lot of what childhood used to be. And the reason always given was, well, times have changed. And like I said, I'm a reporter and I can tell you how times have changed. Crime peaked in 1993 and it's been going down ever since. We're back at the crime rate of about 1963, 67, something like that. You know, there's never been a safer time, except uh, let's forget that we're talking about COVID because we're not talking about COVID. But aside from the virus, there's never been a safer time to be a child in America. And, you know, you can't base certainly... You can base your own decisions on whatever matters to you, but you can't base laws and a culture on a lie. And the lie is that kids are in constant danger. They've never been as in danger before. They're in danger from everything they you know, see, do, try, look, lick, hear. And that's not the case. And it's certainly not the case that kids are more in danger from violent crime than uh, when we were growing up or when any generation until now was growing up. So I was just pushing back on a change in society that seemed to be based on urban myth. And when do you think that myth began to take hold? Because it seems like a kind of a narrow window of time. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, I grew up in the 70s and mm -hmm. I was a teenager in the 80s. And, mm -hmm. you know, we Granted, I wasn't living in New York City in the 1970s, mm -hmm. but, you know, we rode our bikes around and parents were not home. A lot of people came home to it. They were the, we, the latchkey latch kids. Key, and there yeah. was actually something like kind of cool about being a latchkey kid. And then, I mean, it seems like this started to kind of grab onto the culture. What, in like the early, the mid 80s? Yeah. I mean, I have never pinpointed it, but Lifkin, I was I was reading your book <laughs> and you talk about the same thing I talk about in my book, which is those milk carton kids who appeared in the early 80s. Right. There was a push for um, trying to find missing children, which is on the surface of it. Great. But what happened, the way it was ended up sort of spreading through the culture is that 
the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children started putting pictures of missing children on milk cartons without explaining that the vast majority were either runaways or taken in um, custody disputes. Right. You know, like you take the kid for the weekend and you don't By bring a non-custodial back. parent. Yeah, exactly. Right. And that's exactly. the Amber Alerts that we get all the time now. I think, what, like 90 or more percent of them are, that's the scenario. A non-custodial parent has mm-hmm. taken the child. Yeah. Right. So that was, you know, I don't want to be a total cynic, but it felt like somewhat deliberate obfuscation of the problem, you know, it's still not good to be taken in a non-custodial dispute. But in our minds, when we saw these pictures and we're, you know, eating our Rice Krispies or Cookie Crisp or whatever it was and looking at the milk carton and there's, have you seen me? It's like, yeah. yeah, I just saw you yesterday when I took you out of the refrigerator. You're still missing. And oh, my God. And then the next day there's another kid or the next milk carton. And it started to feel like children were being snatched off the street, actually, to the point where right after I had let Izzy ride the bike, I mean, ride the subway. And I was talking to a friend in the city. She felt that letting him ride the subway was fine because she's on the subways all the time too. And we know that they are extremely safe. She said, but aren't they being pulled off their bikes in the suburbs? (laughs) (laughs) Only by older kids. (laughs) Yeah, really, really. Give me that bike. So it really sank into the consciousness of the country you know, as if it was World War Three out there. And if you said goodbye to your kid in the morning, there's no guarantee that you'd see him uh, mm. or her coming through the door in the afternoon. And what interests me, I mean, a lot of things interest me about this, but I was raised by a mom who quit her job to be home for me and my sister, a stay-at-home mom, very concerned about our safety and our well-being. Not to say that working women aren't, oh my God, um, but all I'm saying is she was nervous. And yet letting us walk to school and me at age five, was not a heart in mouth moment every morning of like, oh my God, you know, what's going to happen? I could never forgive myself. And and so when people think that the fear for their children is innate, I agree. I think that we are hardwired to worry about our kids. But I know for a fact that we are not hardwired to worry that they're going to be kidnapped on the way to school every day because my generation of, you know, when I was raised, they weren't worrying about that. And now they are. So the worry got sort of co-opted by this particular fear. And that has changed childhood inordinately because I think there's the latest statistic I have is that 11% of kids now walk to school. So, you know, that's just one indication of how little independence we're allowing them. I want to play an audio clip from a video that is on the Let Grow site. And we're going to hear more about Let Grow. But first, I just want our listeners to hear a a snippet uh, from that. These are some kids talking about what they are afraid to do and what they have learned to do on their own. I decided for my Let Grow project to go ride my bike in town by myself. The second time I did the Let Grow project, I made a key lime pie. This year I started walking home from school. Last year that wasn't like an option for me. I was like too scared. Yesterday I made myself dinner for me and my sisters. Honestly, the more things I did, the more proud I felt of myself. So I just kept doing it and doing it and opening my mind to different things. That's kind of heartbreaking in moments. The girl saying that she was afraid to walk to school. She Mm -hmm. could do it now, but last year it wasn't an option. Like what goes through your mind when you hear things like that? Well, first of all, let's tell the listeners that those kids were seventh graders. So that means they were 12 and 13 years old. And what goes through my mind, in fact, why we made this video is because this was a school where the seventh grade health teacher said that she had never seen a group of kids as anxious, almost terrified (laughs) as that group of kids. And this is now, I think, two or three years ago. And somehow she found her way to Let Grow, which is the nonprofit that grew out of Free Range Kids. And we have this free uh, program for schools that's called the Let Grow Project. And that's what they were talking about, where kids go home with the homework assignment that they have to do something on their own. And we push this because it is really hard for parents to let go in a culture that's told us, remember, you know, remember the kid on the milk carton, you know, the kids are always in danger. And so but if the school is saying you must let them do something on their own, for God's sake. And for grade's sake sometimes, uh, but it's usually just a, 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 you know, it's not for a grade, but it is an assignment. That gives them the impetus to finally let go. And 
what we were finding with these kids, I mean, this particular teacher had the kids do a Lecro project 20 times over the course of the year. So even if they did something super simple, a couple of the times I did the laundry, I, you know, I, I scrambled an egg. Actually, for some kids, scrambling an egg was really scary. <laughs> and some, I mean, really, I was about to read you these. Maybe I'll read you these now. So she also had the kids fill out a little, you know, Xeroxed form where one of the questions is, what's something that you were interested in doing but were kind of hesitant to do for your Let Grow project? And, and can I read you some of these? Please. Okay. Quote. These are all different kids. I was hesitant to try walking my dog alone because I was scared he would get loose from the leash or a scary man would take me. Okay, I'd say that's the direct legacy of um, the milk cartons. Two, I was afraid to climb a tree because I was scared I was going to fall and break a bone. Three, I wanted to try doing a wheelie on my bike, but I was scared I might hurt myself. I was afraid to try and cook because there's an open flame and I could get hurt. And five, I was hesitant to use a sharp knife as my parents had never let me before. Mm -hmm. So what I think when I read those statements and when I, you know, when we put the video together, I, I was the one who interviewed those kids, is I feel, I'd say mostly angry. <laughs> um, you know, I feel bad for the kids, but I feel angry that we have a culture that has been so successfully sucking all the confidence out of parents and kids that the kids can do anything by themselves. I mean, I, what a dastardly plot, <laughs> you know, to make kids feel so anxious that they don't think they can use a sharp knife. I mean, and they're 13 years old. Yeah. And where does that come from? Because obviously being afraid to use a stove or a knife doesn't come out of a fear of being abducted. That's not a direct result of the milk mm -hmm. carton kids. So like, what's the psychology there, do you think? That's interesting. I wonder if it is a direct. I mean, obviously, it's not a direct like it's not like the knife will then, you know, abduct you. But I think that once you start seeing childhood through the lens of risk and danger, it's sort of like, you know, once you're a lawyer, you can, you know, come up with a reason that anything is, uh, you know, can, you can prove anything guilty sort of thing. It feels like that's a strange analogy, but it does feel like it became a trope where if you're a parenting magazine. Right or anybody else interacting with the parenting world, you can start warning people about everything and they will gobble it up. I mean, oh, you know, I hadn't thought about that, but that's a little too soon. And, you know, I don't want her. And then there's, the, there's products, like there's products that are baby knee pads. There's a product that's a spoon that changed. I know. What, I know. really? Yeah. Does that mean the baby is going to do plumbing for you or like do, do work around the house? <laughs> right, I, don't, right, I don't mind sagging that. a little in the, the back. Baby coveralls, the tool belt. <laughs> right, right, right. Actually, there are baby knee pads that are like mop heads. And so when they're crawling, um, at least they're getting the, the floor mopped. But um, <laughs> kind of genius. Get behind that. Yes. Yeah, yeah. What was I going to tell you? Oh, but there's also like the spoon that changes color uh, to tell you that the food is hot. So there's two things wow. going on. I mean, there's so many things going on, but let's just take the spoon for a second. One is the idea that the kid is going to be so hurt because they couldn't, you know, touch something that's a little hot or you can't blow on it. So A, there's this idea of the child's fragility, right? I mean, uh, one spoonful of, of hot rice cereal and all bets are off. But the other is that you, the parent, and let's be frank, the mom, are so stupid, you can't figure out that like, wow, I just took this out of the, the microwave after 17 minutes, or I've had this on a flame, and I wonder if it's hot. I guess it isn't. You know, there's there's steam coming out of it. It's hot. It's painful to hold the spoon, but I'll just shove it in my kid's mouth. I'm sure it's cool enough now. <laughs> I mean, what an insult to everyone. Right. It, the, the crazy thing is that it's treating both generations like they are, can't handle anything, that the, that the child is extremely fragile and that the parent is extremely cavalier and stupid and clueless and just landed here from Mars two minutes ago and doesn't understand the concept of hot. It's hotter on your planet because you're closer to the sun. You know, so <laughs> it's just this weird thing. And once you start thinking about like what is weird about our culture, Megan, this is all you do for a living, you know, you, uh. you start going like, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. How could people believe this? I don't believe this. You, you Once you start wondering, I wonder how this got here. Why is there a helmet for kids to wear when they're toddling? You know, nature provided a helmet. It's called a skull. You know, why <laughs> is there, there one of my favorite objects that some, 
I've lost two of my favorite crazy objects over the years. But one of them is something called walking wings, which is a harness that you put on your kid. It's like a, it's sort of like a, a vest with strings attached to it. And you pull up the strings like the kid is a marionette, you know, like if the kid mm, is in a, mm. a seating position, you could pull it and then they'd be standing and then they walk if they're starting to walk. But the box on it said something like, you know, allows children to walk more naturally. And I'm like, yeah, really? <laughs> That's interesting because... I would have thought dot, dot, dot. But the other thing is it says cuts down on falls. And that is sort of, uh, you know, thesis gold here because it's assuming a couple things. One is that falls are so awful that a child shouldn't experience them. And two, only a bad parent allows their kid to fall. And three, it negates the idea that perhaps falling is part of the plan. You know, perhaps children fall so that they learn that it's better to, to start balancing better, you know, a little incentive there. And so the core belief behind that product is that if you're a caring person, you wouldn't subject your child to the, the trauma and the pain of going through a normal part of childhood, which is learning how to walk. So once you've defined something normal as painful and traumatic, I mean, I think that's what you write a lot about, too. It's been problematized, yes. We're we're problematizing yeah. everyday life. And, it, and selling, I mean, there's also like a real capitalist element here, right? Because they're selling the solutions. They're making right. well, problems they out of, problem. not, they create the problem right. and then they try to sell the solution or at least sell the magazine right. that's writing articles about the problem. Right. So I think, you know, sometimes people say, are we more obsessed with the, you know, safety or kids today because we have smaller families as if in the old days, well, I got 10, I don't care if I lose three, <laughs> you know? I don't think that was ever the case. I don't think people ever didn't care. Mm. I think people rely on that logic, though. Like, oh, you know, there's 10 kids on this farm because two of them are going to die in horrible farming accidents. And that's it's a little cavalier. You're right. I think that people were more understanding that this was, that there were no guarantees. I do believe that. But I think the smaller family, therefore we care more per child, is less that. I mean, I don't think it is that at all. I think it's that we have more money to spend per child. Mm. So if you have, you know, one income with two kids instead of one income with seven, and then if you have two incomes for two kids, (laughs) that's a lot of money that's floating around and the marketplace is wise and figures out that, look, If I can do the thing that matters most, which is scare you about the welfare of your child, that they're either going to get hurt or fall behind, and that there's something you can do to prevent that, unless you're too cheap, then you don't care if your kid lives or dies. Well, that's an easy way to get somebody to open their wallet. So I'd say smaller families matter that way, as opposed to who cares if a couple of them die, I've got so many more in my back pocket. And speaking of the two income thing, I always felt that it was no accident that people started becoming much more concerned about the safety of their kids and just sort of the job of parenting got ratcheted mm-hmm. up right around the time that middle class, upper middle class women started going to work on mass. Mm-hmm. So we started seeing this in, in the early 80s when you had mm-hmm. mothers leaving their kids at home, just going to work. And mm-hmm. so it always felt to me like suddenly the job of motherhood especially, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. had been professionalized. Like It's like, oh, no, you don't. Don't (laughs) think you can have it all. Don't think you can leave this 10-year-old or this 15-year-old even and go to the office all day because we're here to tell you that it's suddenly unsafe. Right. It does seem like suspicious timing. (laughs) Yeah. And I, I think, was it something you wrote or I feel like I read that a mother who works outside the home full time now Mm -hmm. spends much more time with her Mm -hmm. kid than a stay-at-home mom did in the 1950s or 60s. In the 70s. Or 70s, yes. Right, right. And I think it's something like seven hours. I thought the other thing I wrote is that I was reading all the single ladies, this Rebecca Traster book about how single ladies, women without, uh, sort of unburdened by husbands and kids throughout uh, American history were often at the forefront of social movements because they didn't have these other obligations. And so that freed them up to do so much more. Right. And the part that struck me so much is that she writes about like right at the beginning of 
I'm not even sure it was the Industrial Revolution. It might have even been a little before that. But there were some labor-saving devices that came on the market that could finally make it easier. I don't know whether it was to, you know, to clean your clothes or to, to beat your rugs or something. And just as the job got a teeny bit easier and, you know, less onerous, less boring, less time-consuming, along came these books on how to run the perfect household, which ratcheted up mm -hmm. the standards that you were supposed to adhere to. So it's like, and one of the lines that she quoted was like, there is more to folding the perfect napkin than you might believe. And it's like, that's true. I wouldn't believe that there's that much to folding a napkin. You got to prove it. But, you know, it seemed to her and it seems to me, and I think it seems to you that there's an interesting correlation between they're about to do something outside the home, right? They're about to have some free time and they're either going to start a revolution or they're going to get a job. And suddenly, no, 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 you should go back to the home because it needs you to fold the napkins or to keep the children from being preyed upon by you know, fill in the blank. Right. So what do you know about anxiety levels with kids? I mean, we hear this again yeah. and again, and it's yeah, like epidemic and alarming. It is epidemic and alarming. And that's basically what I know. I know that epidemic, uh, that uh, anxiety and depression levels have been going up and that it's not just that there are more kids being diagnosed. There's studies. Um, one of the co-founders of Let Grow is Dr. Peter Gray. He's a evolutionary psychologist. He wrote like one of the basic psychology textbooks used in colleges across America. And he also wrote a book called Free to Learn. And he quotes studies that are consistent over the years, like it's the same study. So it's not like we're suddenly asking, you know, more probing questions or taking, you know, a different answer and calling it anxiety. It's the same study that's been done. I think it's since the 40s or 50s, but I'm not positive. In any event, I am positive that the anxiety rates are going up. And weirdly, he also talks about this one study um, that's been given consistently over the years about creativity that shows creativity going down. And what I haven't started exploring yet and might be like my next obsession for the next year or so is not just anxiety and depression going up, but creativity going down and kids becoming passive. The, the, the seventh grade teacher who we were talking about earlier, who had the kids do the Lecro project at her school, had kids the next year she said they weren't even anxious in a way. The anxiety was sort of subsumed by this passivity where they didn't want to do things on their own. You know, what do you want to do? You know, you can walk to, to, you know, go get yourself a slice of pizza. You can walk the dog. You can, you know, get yourself to swim practice. And they were like blank. Hmm. And I'm starting to wonder, I have seen what seems to me passivity on the part of kids that I've interacted with. And and I do wonder if that's like just sort of giving up or everything seems so hard. Is it because they're on screens? I mean, is it this phenomenon oh, we hear about where they don't want to leave their rooms? All this socializing is taking place on screens, sometimes with people they've never even met in real life. Is it part of that? That's a good idea. I don't actually know. I mean, it seemed to me more like, I guess, you know, when you're really depressed, you don't want to do anything. Nothing sounds interesting. Yeah. Nothing sounds exciting or fun or that you could handle it which goes back to anxiety, it seemed to be more of just, you know, there's nothing for me here, sort of dulled out. Mm. And I'll tell you a story about that in a second. But what I wanted to say about anxiety is that a year after these kids had been doing the Let Grow Project, uh, Jody, the seventh grade teacher that I keep talking about, <laughs> sent me a screen grab. No, I made a screen grab of her uh, text to me, which said, one of her kids just let her know, one of her kids from the year before, just told her that uh, thanks to her and the Let Grow Project, because she's a real rah-rah teacher, you can do it. So I wouldn't discount the importance of her contribution. But between her and the Let Grow Project, 20 times of doing something on herself, by himself, he is now off his anxiety medication. Wow. Yeah. I thought that's cool. And actually, another area that I'm excited about um, people researching and we do seem to have, we, we are about to have two grad students doing a lot of research on, you know, schools that were doing the Let Grow Project and also instituting what we call the Let Grow Play Club, which is free play without, you know, without anybody organizing the kids. Obviously, these bets are off now because of COVID and, and the weirdness of school. But so I do hope that we, um, you know, we get some actual studies done of what is happening in terms of when you give kids back some independence, when you almost foist it upon them, 
does this not just make them feel, you know, happy and independent, but is it um, lowering the anxiety levels? It, it seems to be, you know, anecdotally, we see it. And we've done some minor surveys and, you know, kids do report feeling less anxious. Parents report feeling less anxious. But I want to do that on a bigger scale. But to get back to the the weird passivity thing, just I just had one story that I had to tell you, if I may. Please. So in this case, I was talking to elementary school kids about, you know, what would they like to do? And I was talking to a third grader, third or fourth grader boy. And I asked him, you know, what would you like to do if you could be, you know, you could do something on your own? What would it be? And he said that he wanted to get to karate by himself. And I thought, okay, ding, ding, ding. This is what I'm talking about. You know, get on that bike. I said, how are you going to get there? Like a scooter or a skateboard? You know, how are you going to get there? And he, he looked at me and he said, um, well, I'm going to open the car door and then I close it and I look both ways. And then I walk into the karate school while my mom parks the car in the parking lot. <laughs> yeah, I hope that's a rueful laugh, Megan. I know. Uh, I'm thinking that's a um, perfectly acceptable means of transportation. Yeah. Wow. So, and could, you were obviously assuming he was going to say, I was going to ride my bike there or I was going to walk there or something. Yeah, getting by herself, mean getting out of the car. Right. Wow. And so, what would the alternative have been like? His mother would have come around and opened the car door like a chauffeur and. Or maybe they would have um, gone to the parking lot together. Oh, gone in then, together, right. Right, and then she would have walked him in, and maybe that felt very babyish, which I can understand. Mm-hmm. But um, the horizon seemed so narrow of what constitutes, you know, joyful independence. I mean, like, you know, this is the land of Huckleberry Finn. <laughs> so, uh, you know, you're nine years old, and, you know, that there that there's no... You know, I hate the word agency because it sounds so grad school-y, <laughs> yeah. but it did feel like he didn't realize he had much agency. Let's just put it Well, he way. doesn't realize he has any power, right? Yeah, or he has, doesn't word. realize yeah. that has he has <laughs> <Right>. any, um, <laughs> any sort of control over his life. I mean, I don't know another yeah. way to put it. Yeah. You know, I wanted to ask you too, are you finding regional differences here? Because- when all the, you know, there was so much brouhaha over your column when it came out. And it seems mm-hmm. to me that a lot of it was because you were in New York City. Oh, I'm positive. I'm positive. Yeah. If, if I put him on a bus in Kansas City, you know, that wouldn't have been a story. But the irony is that I think it would be much scarier to be on a bus in Kansas City than in <laughs> New York City. I mean, I'm thinking of like a Greyhound bus. Maybe I'm thinking of the Greyhound bus from Kansas City to New York City. Yeah, it's probably right. more dangerous because you have to get out at the Port Authority. They don't, I mean, what's interesting is that I think you're still allowed to take a bus as a kid. Amtrak changed its rules, I don't know, about five years ago, overnight from, it used to be you could be eight years old and be on Amtrak, and then they switched it to 13. And when I called them, they issued a press release. They just referred me back to the press release, and it said, out of, and not, no incidents had happened, but out of an abundance of caution. And, you know, in my mind, if I'm ever writing another book, one of them is an abundance of caution. (laughs) You know, an abundance of caution is too much caution. It's so much caution that the opposite has started happening, which is you have nine-year-olds who don't realize that they could walk to a karate class for a block and a half and possibly make it there alive. So let's talk regions for a second, because, you know, frankly, I'm not always, I don't know where everybody who writes to us is writing from because it's on emails, et cetera. But I have, you know, spoken across the country and actually the world. And recently, a uh, superintendent from Moscow, Kansas, population 400, said, you know, that they had started doing the Let Grow project there because he, in his office at the school, can see the houses from his office that the kids are being driven from. So, yeah, it doesn't seem particularly regional to me. And um, it doesn't even seem all that economically different. Oh, I was going to ask about that because it's you, your assumption (laughs) would be that this is a upper middle class white phenomenon. Right. Yeah. So the Times had an article two years ago, the New York Times front page, and it was called like the misery of intensive parenting or something like that. And intensive parenting is in the headline. So if you want to Google it, you could just Google intensive parenting New York Times. And um, they quote a study that asked people across the economic spectrum a question like, 
you're making dinner and your daughter, you know, second grader or whatever says, come draw with me. What do you do? And across the economic spectrum, the answer was a good parent. You know, if you're being the best parent, you stop whatever you're doing and draw with the child because they've shown an interest and you want to show an interest in them and encourage them and not blow them off. And I think that that's new. First of all, I think it's great for kids to see you doing whatever you have to do. It's not like you're, uh, you know, pretending that you're busy. You are busy. And they could, you know, watch you cook. They could help you cook. But the idea that you must cater to their desire for your involvement every time seems like something I might have thought was more middle to upper middle class. But it sounds like the idea of this intensive parenting has been absorbed by the culture. I think it's just considered normal. And, you know, I, I, there was a cool somebody, you know, everything I get is from people sending me ideas and stories. So at the beginning of Sesame Street, you know, way back when there was a, a video called Our Lost Dog or something like that. And it was two kids, you know, and you hear them talking, in, I don't know, like nine and five or something like that. And they're like, we lost our dog and we had to find him. And so it's, you know, cute music in the background and we see all the steps they have to do to take to find him. And it was so long ago that they actually had to go to like to the linotype man, you know, to make a poster. <laughs> it's right. just incredible. You know, he's pouring the, you know, they had to go to a, a monk with a feather quill. No, um, it, but it was a, a, a guy making a poster for them. So here they are interacting with the guy, no, mm-hmm. no other adult around, mm-hmm. and he makes the poster and then they go around and put the posters up all over the little town and it's them, you know, the boy and his sister doing this. And in the end, somebody brings them the dog and kills him. No, somebody brings them the dog. And that was uh, the Sesame Street alternative. On the, yeah, that's right. A, that adult was, channel. A, yes. Right. Uh, they, they edited that out for PBS. Anyways, so it's a sweet thing. And obviously it's out of date with the linotype guy and the, the hot lead. So they remade it. And in the remake, it's we lost our dog. And so the, the boy and the girl... And mom and a baby pushing the stroller, mom pushing the baby in the stroller, go to the library to use the computer to see where, you know, how you do this or whatever, to print out the, the, the poster. And then they all go around the town together to put the posters up and then the dog is found. And I said, can you believe it? Can you believe it? They added that mom for no reason. And then somebody wrote to the blog and said, she was there anyway. She had to take the baby for a walk. Why not go with them, you cynic Lenore? And I'm like, it's fiction. (laughs) (laughs) That probably wasn't even her baby, you know? Well, speaking of Sesame Street, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but as you're speaking, I'm remembering there was the whole change in the Snuffleupagus storyline. So Big okay, Bird. I, I don't know. The you don't know this? Story. Okay. Well, so um, Big Bird and Snuffleupagus were friends. Mm-hmm. They Snuffleupagus was Big Bird's imaginary friend. The whole conceit oh. was that he could not be seen by the adults. So Big Bird would always be talking about my friend Snuffy, Snuffle. He <laughs> was just here. He's my best friend. And then one of the grown-ups would come around and say, I don't see him. I don't see anybody mm-hmm. around here because Snuffleupagus would always just sort of slink off as soon as, as <laughs> an adult came. And wow. I think this was maybe in the 90s, the early 90s. Mm-hmm educational consultants became concerned that kids would be afraid that adults wouldn't believe them if they reported, for instance, being sexually abused or anything else. And they felt like that constantly seeing these adults not believe Big Bird about the existence of Snuffleupagus was sending the wrong message. So they suddenly made Snuffleupagus visible and suddenly it was like, oh, Big Bird, we should have believed you all along. And wow. now there's a whole Snuffleupagus family. And, you know, I, I get it on a logical level, but there was something so beautiful about Big Bird having an imaginary friend, um, as kids do. And to have him sort of robbed of that relationship, mm. so to speak, um, it was felt like kind of a loss. So anyway, that's just a little Sesame Street tidbit. I did not know that. I have to say my neighbor uh, has a five-year-old kid and he started doing Zoom calls with his imaginary friends. I thought that was just Real? so great. Right? So there's just nobody on the other side? There's nobody there, but he's telling them, okay, you know, I'd like you to mute your mics. You know, we're calling the meeting. It's like, wow, kids are just, you know, they can be That's great. Amazing. That's, yeah. wow. 
Tell us about Let Grow. How is it organized? What is its mission? Mm -hmm. What's the whole framework? So about three or four years ago, two people came to me, um, Daniel Shuckman, who's the former chairman of FIRE, which fights for free speech on campus, and Jonathan Haidt, who wrote The Coddling of the American Mind and is a professor of business at NYU, came and said, um, we're worried about fragility of young people. And we don't think it is happening just when they step on campus or graduate. We think it must be coming from something uh, earlier on where they are, you know, sort of being raised with what we were talking about before, you know, anxiety and, you know, sort of easily offended or hurt or worried or sensitive. And they said, you know, we see that you're fighting sort of the overprotective impulse on the part of our culture. And by the way, I just want to put in that, like, people think I'm the anti-helicopter parent, and I am not, in part because I'm part helicopter, and also because I don't think it is the parents who are making this happen. I feel Mm. like there's this entire culture that's there, you know, selling them the knee pads and the walking wings and telling them that, you know, your kid will be hurt forever if you don't drop everything you're doing and, and start drawing with her. So you, you keep getting messages from the culture that your kid is fragile and that you better be aware of it every step of the way. You better not let anything ever hurt or upset them. Why do you, I mean, like you're in a culture, even if you think that like they can handle something. My, my son got a, an eighth place trophy out of nine teams for his bowling league. And it wasn't an ironic trophy. Wait, are you serious? Are, are you making yes, a joke? Yes, yes. And I serious. lost it. This is the other thing I lost. I lost it. It was you the lost eighth the eighth place, place trophy. How big was it? So the first place trophy must have been like the size of a building or something. You know, I never saw the first place trophy because my son never won that. He only won eighth place, and it was about the size of. It was a little taller than I'd say a mug. You know. Okay. And it was, you know, it was appropriately pathetic. But what was really pathetic is that he was given it at all. Because it was unironic, it seemed to suggest that nobody should feel bad and everybody should feel like they had succeeded wildly at something, even though eighth out of nine teams. And also it was a teen league. So by then, you know, either you think that kids can't handle anything or you or they're so delusional that they think, well, I am great. You know, eighth is pretty damn great. Or, you know, that nobody should feel like they are bad at anything and that if they do feel bad that that will be such a a hurtful terrible moment that you wouldn't dare inflict it upon them and I think that that's what you know Dan and uh, John Haidt to me was there's something going on in this culture that is getting kids used to and getting parents and other adults used to giving them constant high fives for breathing And this does not make you able to deal with a disappointment, a frustration, an insult. If you've been told that anytime those things happen to you and you feel bad, somebody should be giving you a trophy instead. And the article that I refer to a lot because it strikes me as the Rosetta Stone for our culture was a Parents Magazine piece. It's many years ago by now. It's probably seven years ago by now about play dates. And it was questions and answers. And one of the questions was, your kid is old enough to stay home alone and often does for a short while. But now she has a play date over. Can you still run to the dry cleaners? And the answer Parents Magazine, Bible of the Parenting World, um, gives was absolutely not. First of all, they could hurt themselves. And they give an example of a kid who once got um, some burns from microwaving macaroni wrong. But then the second example was, and what if they have a a spat? You want to be able to jump in so nobody's feelings get too hurt. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, unpack that with me for a second, Megan. You want to be sure no one's feelings get too hurt. Why? What would happen if they did? That's the whole point of having a play date, isn't it? To to leave in (laughs) tears. (laughs) I'm not having a play date with you. (laughs) Have uh, some sort of terrible moment, but that you recover from, right? Like, you know, there's there's a low, low, and then it bounces right back up. Yeah. Right. So that thing that you just said, funnily, you know, recover from seems to be a taboo perspective. (laughs) You know, if you think they're just going to recover from it, then you don't need to jump in. And in fact, if you think there's something good about them, 
either learning to recover from it or getting themselves out of the spat because they figure out something else to do or, you know, you'll be, I get to be Barbie and then you get to be Barbie. So everybody gets stuck being Ken the same amount of time. Then you're assuming that they are both um, resourceful and resilient. But if you assume they are neither, then you'd better be there because these two fragile people can't survive what we all know is a normal interaction, which doesn't have to be perfect. So that's what I worry about our culture teaching parents and teaching, you know, teachers and coaches and everything that like, don't expect kids to be able to handle anything. You know, they can't microwave macaroni, they're going to get, you know, burned. And they can't argue about Barbie and Ken without somebody being traumatized. These sorts of conditions, this kind of logic is very often cited when people are talking about just resilience in the culture mm-hmm. in general among young adults, people, whether it's stuff going on in college campuses with students not being able to handle certain texts or speakers coming in, you know, everything that we you know when we talk about the culture wars now, the backstory often seems to be, well, people are fragile, they can't handle disagreement, they can't handle conflict, they don't want to be not acknowledged all the time. Anyway, all the, this is nothing new. We've heard this a million times. I've talked about it a lot on this show. So if we are to understand that what's informing this is this kind of childhood lack of exposure to any sort of conflict or just obstacle, I still want to know, like, what is causing it? Is it like the mm-hmm. mother's feeling like they have to overcompensate? Is it like just the feeling, you know, some parents have explained this to me by saying, you know, the world is just so competitive now. It is so much harder to do anything. It's harder to get into. It's exponentially harder to get into college now than it was 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. Go go down the list. We just don't have any margin for error. And so this is what it's become. Wow, I'm taking little notes here because there's so much that is interesting. Don't listen to me. This is I, I am reporting what other people have told me. I don't have right. children, so I, I just yeah, hear, yeah, no, as, hear this you're, as, you're, as an observer. Critic. Yeah, I mean, observing <laughs> is legit. I mean, that's called, you know, gathering information and making hypotheses. Yeah, the, the feeling that we can't compete without all these uh, conditions in place. That's what I hear sometimes. Right. So let me talk about competition first. I think that's true. I think it is hard to imagine you know, the world as, you know, 7 billion people all trying to get that job, it it does look very daunting to parents. You know, all parents are worried about their kids, you know, making a living and getting ahead. And if it looks like the prizes are scant, then you do worry like, well, my kid better get it. And not because you're such a jerk, but because you're biologically, you know, wired to want your kids to succeed. So I understand the feeling of, you know, scarceness and franticness. And I can't say that I'm totally immune to that. So let's just put that out there. So I think that you're right, that that feeling competitive is probably part of the mix. But I think another part of the mix is what we were just talking about before. If the culture has decided that it the only compassionate, decent way to look at childhood is through the lens of vulnerability. How could they be hurt? How long will they be hurt? How badly will they be hurt? How long will it take to recover? Will they ever recover? Then you start thinking of little things start seeming big things. And if Parents Magazine is telling you that a spat is something that is so devastating that if you better be home, you better be watching the kids the whole time, I guess, to make sure that you're overhearing it and jumping in. I mean, first of all, that's a new level of involvement that's required of parents. It's just a crazy level of involvement. You can't do anything but sort of listen in. But somebody in the position of authority has decided that you, as a good parent, will make sure that your child never feels uncomfortable, never has to deal with the the pain of going home without the trophy or, you know, having the argument and being upset. So like I feel for parents, I feel like my mom didn't have to think that everything that I encountered was a potential threat to me either emotionally or physically or psychologically or future competitionally, whatever the word is. So the job of parent has been rewritten from, you know, raise your kids and teach them right to 
you know, something between a concierge and a minder <laughs> and a, a security detail. You talk about it in your own book about the, the job had become a security detail. That's So you're an emotional security detail as well as a physical security detail. And that's what we're talking about. What is happening if you're raised that way because the culture has told your parents to do that for you? Then maybe you're like those seventh graders who are who see everything. They've sort of internalized everything as a potential, not only just a risk, but I mean the way the kids see it. You know, if you think that you're, that people don't believe in you, think that like you know if you tried to do this, you would mess up or be hurt. So when I was talking at the beginning and saying, quoting these seventh graders, like I was afraid to climb a tree because I was scared I was going to fall and break a bone. I was try- hesitant to try walking my dog because I was scared he would get loose from the leash. So they are seeing, like, they're seeing a failure, right? If they try to do something, they're going to mess up. They're seeing the worst case scenario. They're seeing the worst case scenario, but they're also seeing themselves as very incompetent. Right. You know, most dogs don't get off the leash. You know, you put the leash around them and most of them, from what I've seen walking around, you see the dog stays on a leash. That's why the leash is attached. So they are seeing themselves as losers. Mm. And so when parents are worried about their kids succeeding in the future, I just want to tell them that, you know, your kids can succeed and it's not all up to you. It's not all up to them. There's so many factors. I I hate the focus on parent, parent, parent. But one thing is to give them some of this independence because then when the dog does get off the leash, I had this happen to me a couple of years ago, and you have to chase it and get it back, you know, you've succeeded. Something had happened. I mean, like, Exposure therapy is like being exposed to the thing that scares you and realizing, oh, I can touch the cat. I can touch the spider, you know, and I'm going to be okay. And the opposite of exposure therapy is saying something bad is going to happen if you do this. So don't try to do this. And so if you want your kids to succeed and sort of be brave and ready to take on the next challenge or bounce back from a disappointment or a frustration or or a real failure, they have to encounter some. And so we really feel like it's so hard for parents to do that, that the Let Grow project and one of Let Grow's big initiatives is making it easier for parents to let go so that their kids have the experience of doing something independently, well or poorly, but succeeding eventually. And then the parents have this incredible experience of realizing like, my kid did that okay, even though I wasn't with them. Because both generations need to see that this is not a crazy idea. It has it, The idea of any independent moment or any frustration, any failure has been written so large as like, you know, do this and you're never going to get to college and you're never going to get a job and you're going to end up in the gutter. And Right, right. So we, we really have to come up with some real world, easy, free projects for parents to do. And that's why, that's why I have to keep promoting Let Grow because Let Grow decided... You know, 10 years, Lenore goes around, talks about free range kids. A lot of people nod along. They all remember their happy childhood. Nobody can, but nothing changes. So Let Grow is dedicated to forget changing minds. Let's change action. Let's make sure that kids can go to school and either do this project, you know, after school or play where nobody is also solving the spats and nobody's deciding what the game is. And if you're a total jerk, nobody will play with you. And so you have to modify your behavior. And if you're a bully or a bore or a, you know, a bossy person and and nobody likes hearing from you, you start reading the other people and realize, oh, I have to do a little bit of compromising and I have to, you know, okay, say the ball was out. And that's how kids get used to dealing with each other, dealing with conflict. And we've taken play out of kids' lives, free play when they're doing all that social emotional work and replaced it with a lot of adult organized play where they learn how to kick the ball really well. They learn how to hit a ball really well, but they don't learn how to make the teams and how to change the rules and how to, you know, decide who's bringing the snack. It's all decided by an adult. And so we're just trying to figure out new ways to weave independence, normal independence, back into children's lives so that parents aren't afraid of it and kids get to experience it. And so that by the time they are at college, they've had a million arguments. They've had a million spats. They've had a million times when they've fallen off their bike and had to get back on it. And there wasn't anyone there because we think of that as vaccination, vaccinated against vicissitudes of everyday life so that they arrive on campus or at their first job, ready to deal with what comes at them. Well said. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, sometimes, I'm sometimes absorbing I get <laughs> Another really important piece, though, is that you've actually helped enact legislation that protects parents because 
one really important thing to to recognize and talk about is the fact that some parents are actually being punished yeah by a legal sense that are being arrested in some cases for mm-hmm. letting their children walk to school or play in a park alone. Mm-hmm. So two years ago, the state of Utah mm-hmm. uh, passed a law that came directly out of out of your work. It, yeah. it exempts that from the definition of child neglect various activities children can do without supervision, permitting mm-hmm. a child whose basic needs are met and who is of sufficient age and maturity to avoid harm or unreasonable risk of harm to engage in independent activities. Okay, so that's actually huge. And I think it's a piece of this that is probably overlooked because we're talking so much about why these parents are being so irrational. And in in fact, they're protecting themselves as well as their children. So it's always hard to talk about this particular um, aspect of let grow or free range or whatever you want to call it, because on the one hand, it does happen. Sometimes parents do get investigated for letting their kids have some independence. On the other hand, the more I talk about it, the more people become afraid of it. Oh, <laughs> and therefore, yeah, like, sorry, I'd love I love to let my kid play out. No, 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 it's okay, because it is, it's, it's, it's a conundrum. You know, I want to let my kid go to the park, but I don't want to end up like Deborah Harrell, the, the single mom in South Carolina who let her nine-year-old play in the park and got arrested for neglect. And then it became, a thank God, a giant story and everything ended up fine in the end. But so... Uh, We are trying to get more, and now we call it reasonable childhood independence laws, used to be called the free range kids law, which says that basically, you know, unless you are grossly putting your child in harm's way, let's assume that, you know, kids are allowed some independence and also that parents both don't have to adhere to the, the helicopter model that you're with them every single second. And also that, you know, you can't mistake everyday you know, goof ups or flubs or whatever, imperfection for actual neglect. And and the example I was, I was talking to my friend this morning about it is like, there was this guy in England, he and his wife went to a pub, um, they both took different cars. And when they left, you know, he left and went his way and she went in her car. And then their daughter who was at the pub came out of the bathroom and said, where is everyone? So they both assumed that the daughter was with the other parent. And these things happened, but the, but that parent was Tony Blair. Okay, (laughs) the prime minister of Britain. And I think that that is a great just proof that no parent is perfect all the time. And so the idea that like, you know, your kid wanders away at the park for a little bit and you look up and you go, oh, my God, where is he? Or the kid you don't realize is old enough. And, you know, the three year old now can open the door and wanders off. And it's like the three year old can open the door. So not only. Should you be allowed to give your kids some independence, whether because it's your you're working two jobs and you need the kid to come home with the latchkey, like we were talking about before, or because you want to give them the experience of independence, but also because things go wrong. And that doesn't mean that you're a terrible parent. It means that you live on Earth and you're a human where not everything is perfect every single time. Well, and speaking of perfection and Mm -hmm. projecting an image of perfection in a recent post on the Let Grow site. I noticed a couple things. You mentioned a bizarre study and frankly, an even more bizarre article that ran in Parenting Magazine, or at least on their website. And mm. that article was called Science Says Kids Shouldn't Cross the Street Until They're 14. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I was hoping there would be comments telling the author how nutty this sounded, but if but there weren't, of course. And then I actually clicked on the author's name and it turned out she's a sort of influencer type. And this got me thinking about the influencer phenomenon mm. and how much it has perpetuated this obsessive, hypervigilant parenting, made it almost mm-hmm. a performance. So I'm wondering if if you've noticed if that's had any effect. Is there an Instagram effect in all of this? Oh, my God. Um, now you're getting to my bet noir. Do I follow anyone on Instagram? Now you know I don't. I'm not even on Instagram, so I'm just oh, imagining so all of this. So we're both like off the planet when it comes to knowing what's really going on. I don't know about influencers. I really don't know about influencers. But I do know that there are experts out there. And, you know, you, you can't be an expert saying, like, everything's fine. <laughs> you know, don't right, worry so right. much. Feed them whatever they're hungry. You know, the idea of shrugging is, you know, sometimes embraced by some funny experts, but the uh, there is a lot of perfectionism and I don't know if you'd call it performance because I don't think of parents doing this 
you know, just to say, look how great I am. But if you are afraid that if you, you know, you feed your kid a non-organic grape or you, you know, use the wrong phrase to praise them or, you know, there's a lot of nattering out there in the social media and the old media world about, you know, did you realize this could hurt your kid? In my book, which is like old now, there's a whole chapter on um, experts and you know, there are experts on every aspect of childhood, and I've consulted them on something. So it's not like it's a crazy idea that there's people there who know more than you about something, and you can ask them questions or read what they've discovered. But it does seem like every single aspect of childhood has an expert telling you what to do down to how to have a conversation, you know, after school, don't ask, how was your day? Ask, you know, what did you, you know, discover today that makes you a better person uh, in terms of food, in terms of friendship, in terms, I mean, like there's just, there are a lot of experts out there and experts generally are there to tell you you're doing it wrong. Right. So yes, call them experts or influencers. There are people who can come up with, have you ever realized that this is way more important than we thought before? And then they tell you something and now you have something new to worry about. Well, this is all, it's really interesting to think about and it's disturbing in a lot of ways. And it's sad. I guess ultimately I feel sad about it more than anything else. You know, it's funny. We're talking about the the child abduction hysteria and the kids on the milk carton. Mm-hmm. The Patient zero, in a lot of ways, with the missing kids was Aton Pates. That was the mm-hmm. famous case in 1979. This was the seven-year-old who the family was living in Soho in New York City, and the parents had let him walk to school alone for the first t- walk to the school bus just a few blocks for the first time, and just uh, disappeared um, into thin air, seemingly. And there were his father was a photographer. There were tons of photographs of him. So he became the face of this Mm -hmm. issue. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's funny, I was, I actually had uh, occasion to correspond with Eitan Pates's father, Stanley Pates, uh, Mm -hmm. back in 2015. I was writing a column for the LA Times and there was a trial regarding the person they thought had, had abducted him. He was never found. Anyway, Stan said a really remarkable thing. I had written a column about how this case had changed the culture of parenting and really, I think, started a lot of this helicopter parenting in in certain ways. And Stanley Pates wrote to me, concerning the cultural legacy of Eitan's disappearance, a perfectly good name has been cursed, meaning Eitan's name. Hmm. We have created millions of helicopter parents who have spawned a generation or so of emotionally stunted children due to this extremely rare tragedy. Mm -hmm. And it was really sort of breathtaking to hear him say that. Mm -hmm. And just the power of these cases. And that was even back obviously, before there was social media. I mean, now we're just hearing every single bad thing that happens to everybody all the time. And I think that our sense of danger being imminent, uh, it's pervasive. It's not just Mm -hmm. in the arena of of children and parenting. It's it's all of us. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. I think we're on, you know, red alert all the time. But while that is sad, I actually feel pretty you know, on my good days, I'd say I feel very optimistic because, first of all, you know, Let Grow has these programs which are free. So that makes them easy for any school or any individual to do. If you go to letgrow.org, there's an independence kit. There's for schools, there's the Let Grow Project, there's the Play Club. All of the information is there. It's easy to download. And like I said, doesn't cost anything. But I think the message that's starting to get out because we, we began this conversation talking about childhood anxiety and depression is that, you know, what would you say if I said there was a free way that you could make your child, you know, more able to cope and more resilient and more ready for this crazy world that's coming at us that we can't predict and, you know, more ready to bounce back from those frustrations and say, I can do it. Well, there is. And there is. And I think Like I said, on my good days, I start thinking that independence is sort of a forgotten thing that people are going to start remembering was an important part of childhood that can have all sorts of 
benefits. You know, it can make the kid more helpful. It can make the kid more happy. It can make the kid more successful. It can make them less anxious. It can sometimes cure some of the tension between parents and kids because part of it is that a kid is, you know, ready to grow up and being stunted like a bonsai tree. Right. So I'm excited to see not only schools doing the Lecro Project, but psychologists using this as part of the panoply of what can make kids better, you know, rather than just, you know, a pill or a protocol, you know, say, look, it, I want you to walk to the store for me and come back with some licorice. And I just, you know, it's sort of like, you know, we discovered that we should have whole wheat instead of taking all the, you know, all the whole grains out of food. We realized like, oh, wait a minute, that stuff was there all the while. We could just put it back in and we'll be healthier. And I really think that independence got lost in this mix of fear and worry and, uh, you know, milk cartons. And all we're doing at Let Grow is saying independence is a critical part of childhood. Let's give it back to them. Here's some ideas of how to do it. We're going to make it legal. We're going to make it easy. We're going to make it normal. And I really think that once that message get out, gets out there, and it is getting out there, I'm on your show now. I mean, this is like part of the deal is that when people hear this, it's not crazy. It's not hard. It's free. And I think it's going to become ubiquitous. I think it, we're going to wake up from this sort of coma of fear and say, damn, I can't believe my culture made me so afraid for my kids and say, screw you culture and send those kids out and it's going to be better. <laughs> screw you culture that screw should be culture. the motto <laughs> of this show and all of be. our lives <laughs> well Lenore Skenazy thank you so much for the work you're doing and thank you for coming on The Unspeakable and talking about it thank you for letting me speak on The Unspeakable I think The Unspeakable is that like your kids are going to be fine it's 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 scary thing to say even for me because you feel like you're tempting fate but pretty much it's going to be okay <laughs> That was my interview with Lenore Skenazy. You can learn more about her at freerangekids.org, and you can visit Let Grow at letgrow.org. You've been listening to The Unspeakable Podcast with Megan Daum. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. And for more information, you can visit theunspeakablepodcast.com. Please consider supporting the podcast on its brand new Patreon page, where you'll find all kinds of extras, like entire bonus episodes and extended versions of episodes. You can go to patreon.com slash the unspeakable and sign up at any of three different subscription levels. It really helps me to keep doing the podcast, and I'm so grateful when you sign up. So thank you. Meanwhile, I hope you'll tune in next week. I'll announce the guests very soon on the website and all the usual social media spaces. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Hi, I'm Frank. I don't like change. And I just saw a billboard for this new BJ's Wholesale Club talking about how you could pay as little as two cents a gallon for gas. Look, when gas prices are this low, we can't complain about gas prices being too high. No, sir. I wouldn't join BJ's Wholesale Club. Hey, thanks, Frank. But if you do want to sign up now to get a $40 BJ's digital gift card, join the new BJ's Wholesale Club, opening soon in South Fayette. Visit BJ's.com slash South Fayette or the BJ's Membership Center at Newbury Market. Offer valid for a limited time. Are you in excruciating pain brought on by your son, daughter, or spouse suffering from addiction? You are not alone. If you call Recovery Centers of America today at 1-888-RECOVERY, your whole family can begin to recover. At Recovery Centers of America at Monroeville, your love one will be treated with care by expert addiction professionals, while family programming will give you support and healing so that you can recover as well. RCA accepts insurance, provides transportation, and offers intervention services. Call 1-888-RECOVERY now.